day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Happy Martin Luther King Day, everyone. Today, we are going to observe this day as we do each year on Detroit Today by hearing Dr. King's original I Have a Dream speech, which was delivered not in Washington, D.C., but here in Detroit in June of 1963. But before we do that, we want to welcome someone who will be helping Wayne State University celebrate this day as the featured guest for the university's MLK tribute. Carolyn Randall Williams is an award-winning poet and activist, and she's a writer-in-residence of Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University. Carolyn Randall Williams, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Yes. So I want to start with a piece you wrote for the New York Times last year when we were debating nationally the removal of Confederate model uh, monuments. Uh, the piece was titled, You Want a Confederate Monument? My Body is a Confederate Monument. I want to ask you uh, about the imagistic sort of analysis that you, that you used there, which I thought was so, so powerful, and sort of cast it forward to what we saw this month during this really violent, white supremacist-inspired insurrection in Washington, D.C., as we saw images of people, for instance, carrying the Confederate flag through the halls of the Capitol. It seems to me there's a very strong connection between those things and what you were talking about last year. Yes. Wow. I love being asked to put those two things together. Uh, it's not a juxtaposition. It's really just a, another layer of context. Um, you know, I think when I wrote the piece, what I was asking readers to do was not rewrite history or paint over anything, but to re-remember and to reframe what we know um, by adding more layers because, you know, silencing happens in real time. Systems of oppression mean that people who are living the same space of time don't get their histories recorded. And then, you know, because of uh, oral traditions and because of lived experience and collective cultural memory, those of us who have been able to transcend the oppression of our ancestors are able to look back and retell the stories that were silenced in real time. And I think what we saw at the Capitol was just another, um, more of the dregs of what happens when we don't revisit the past in order to add more layers of context. Mm. Um, I think that what we watched was people, you know, when you think of the uh, current, thankfully soon-to-be past president um, and the rhetoric uh, of his campaign, Make America Great Again, the kind of nostalgia that he was talking about was predicated on um, systems of oppression that actually are a shame, are a, a blot on America's history. They're a stain that the founding fathers knew even as they wrote this place into being. If you look at Thomas Jefferson's papers, he knows that slavery is America's original sin, um, and he knows that it is not one that is really, uh, it's, it's not an excusable one. 
he thought it was an inevitable one, but it, he did not think it was an excusable one. Um, and so I think that when people pine for a great America, it's a great America for those that are benefiting from the people whose necks they're standing on. Mm. Um, and I think that the people that stormed the Capitol indignant uh, want to go back to a time when we can forget about the next standing part of things. Um, And I, you know, I wrote that article to remind people that some of us live in bodies that we'll never forget because that uh, oppression is written into our DNA. I I mean, and and that was, that was, again, what made that piece so powerful was that it it, it talked about how impossible it is to not see, right. To not Mm -hmm. see these things. If you're African-American, if you're an African-American woman, it, 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 it is, defining in a way that uh, that that is inescapable but at the same time I feel like um, maybe what we saw at the Capitol is also impossible to to look away from is impossible to forget and that makes it harder to to suppress these these uh, to suppress the idea that we haven't dealt with 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 all of this I think it's such a stark, image again uh someone with the confederate flag slung over his shoulder you know mm-hmm. waltzing through the the, the rotunda uh it, it, you you can't unsee that and and so it, it, it makes it harder i hope to unsee what that represents and and what it tells us about where we are as a people well you know it's funny i i will say i'm working on a piece right now um that I hope will come out soon on the heels of this conversation um, about that exact concern that you've just articulated. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, um, on the one hand, yes, I think that it is. It is frankly in the midst of all of this chaos. It is heartening to see that people are genuinely alarmed by this. But it's also disheartening, or it is heartening to see the genuine alarm. It's heartening to see that people are so uh, shook by this, even the conservative, some conservative Republicans. Mm -hmm. What is disheartening is that they're shook by this, (laughs) because (laughs) it means that they didn't know what was already there. Yeah. I think that we're grappling as a country with the fact that, you know, if you have an infection and you put Neospor on it and it kind of goes away, but then you neglect, you know, the wound, um, the, the infection will reemerge. Or if you take a, it's not even a good enough one because I don't know enough about gangrene. What I do know about is things like antibiotic resistant strains of diseases, right? If you, only take your medicine until you feel better and don't take the full dose, then your body just becomes inoculated to the medicine that can actually help you. Um, And then down the road, when you actually get sick again, the medicine won't work, right? So I I think that America is sort of dealing with a moral version of this antibiotic resistant Mm. disease. Um, Because I think that, you know, we sort of, beat it back and beat it back, but we never actually dealt with the original infection um, of systemic racism, of slavery, of 
uh, the forced migration and genocide of the people who lived on this land before Europeans got here. Um, and we've sort of said, well, we've stopped doing all that now, so let's just get on with it. Um, but that's not how repentance works. That's not how um, infections are resolved in the body. Um, that's not how any healing begins. Yeah. So I think that we're we're living through a moment where we have to say, are we really prepared to do the work of cleaning and sealing properly the wound? Are we going to develop um, a treatment for this illness fundamentally? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. Oh, and I was I was mentioning the article that I'm I'm working on right now. Confederates entered the capital within decades of the Civil War ending, if not before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, after the you know once they locked down, once they stopped all of the recon uh, the reconstruction, uh, black elected uh, officials, um, they just all those white men in power who had been Confederate officers ran for uh, ran, ran for, for seats. Yeah. And re-entered the capital as uh, reintegrated parts of American society. They were not examined for their crimes. They were not reproached for being traitors. They were given seats in the House and the Senate. Um, so Confederates breached the capital. You know, my great great grandfather, the one I wrote about in that piece that you referenced, Edmund Pettus. He was a Confederate general who then served in the United States Senate um, until his death. So Confederates breached the Capitol uh, right after the Civil War, and they stayed there until they died. And, you know, last I checked, um, the flag, the Confederate flag was hanging in the Capitol until November of 2020 when Mississippi finally voted to take it off of their state flag. Um, And I think that we do our country a profound disservice when we forget that we've never been better than this. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is such a powerful thing to consider that we've never, we've never been better than this. Um, I, I, I want to give you a chance to talk just a little about what it's been like in the last year as an activist, uh, as a woman of color, as somebody who is focused on these issues and this work. Um, I, I think for for lots of us, there there aren't other years that compare uh, <laughs> in terms of the things that have happened to us, in terms of the things that we've had to think about. Uh, I, I'm curious what that process has looked like for you. Wow! Uh, again, it's such a pleasure to be talking to you this morning. These are great <laughs> questions. Um, I had the opportunity to speak to some high school students yesterday morning, and. They asked me, one of the students asked me, you know, what were my defining moments in youth that made me want to put pen to paper to become a writer and to be um, and to use my voice for good um, in this way? Uh, And the student referenced, you know, the Parkland shooting was very defining for her, um, for example. And then obviously these past four years, but especially the 2016 election. And I, it was, and I found that question moving because I think one of the one of the big ticket items in my life that I landed on was Barack Obama's 2008 campaign, hmm. the tw- the 2008 election. I'm still feeding 
my will to work off of the hope that I stored then. Wow. Um, I worked, I interned on Capitol Hill for my congressman, Jim Cooper, for uh, a chunk of that summer. And then I uh, went to work every day for the remainder of the summer um, at the Tennessee, uh, the, the DNC's Tennessee headquarters um, here in Nashville. And I registered people to vote all day. I made calls when I wasn't at the desk. Um, and I, you know, felt this joy. And I want to say there was a fear, but it was a fear that was attached to hope. Lady Smith has this amazing essay about joy and how it's actually this terrifying feeling because joy is attached to you're so joy part of the um, elation of it is attached to a fear of losing the thing yes. that you're so happy about that's right um like a big love or um a new a new life things like that so i think i felt this joy and i i was almost afraid of my joy because i was so i was like what if this doesn't work after all of this amazing hard all, all, all of this effort, all of this potential, this um, long last payoff of this first black president. And then it did work. Um, and that was, to me, America working. It was, you know, Dr. King talks about uh, cashing a check <laughs> that this country owes to black people. And there was at least a deposit into the bank of what this country owes us during um, that during those moments in 2008 um, and watching him and Michelle and the two girls walk out on stage mm. in November, I, I remember weeping in the dorm, in the common room of my dorm in college. Um, and it was, it was wild. I was working on a paper that day for, uh, I was taking a class with uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates with Skip Gates. Um, and I was writing a paper about Frederick Douglass's speech, What to a Slave is the Fourth of July. <laughs> um, because I, I'd chosen that topic because I was nervous. I needed to fortify myself for the work ahead if it didn't go well <laughs> uh, on, uh, on, the, on Election Tuesday. And then it did go well. And I just, I've never felt anything quite like that before or since. Um, but what I will say is, in this moment in time, I'm still living off of that feeling of the potential energy that I remember from that moment. And I think, um, and I'm, I don't think I'm alone. I think that there are a lot of people of color. This has been the hardest sustained chapter that I have lived through under normal conditions, you know, yeah. barring personal tragedy. And I've never been to war, for example. But I think I've never felt more like it's—the um, lack of precedent is part of the potential energy, mm -hmm. I guess, is what I'll say. I feel like it's never been more time for us to be sure that whatever we feel like we need to say, we just ought to go ahead and say it, because um, all of the norms have been abandoned, and for good and ill, and part of the good is that it's now time— for those of us who have found our way into white spaces, into positions of power, um, navigating these systems of white supremacy, we now, after all of that work, we're suffering from watching this wildness, but we're also already in these spaces 
and the things that we haven't allowed ourselves to say, we now get to say, and we have a platform to say them. So yeah. I think that's, that's sort of where my head is with mm. all of that. It's a yeah. very long answer. To no, me. no, no. That's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful series of thoughts. Okay, Carolyn Randall Williams is an award-winning poet and activist. She's a writer in residence of Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University, and she is the featured guest for Wayne State University's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. tribute today at 1 p.m. with a replay at 7 p.m. If you're interested in the event, it's going to be streamed at wayne.edu slash live. You can RSVP at communityoutreach.wayne.edu slash MLK. It will also show on Comcast Channel 900. Okay, Carolyn Randall Williams, it was really great to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to observe our annual Martin Luther King Jr. Day tradition here in Detroit today and listen to Dr. King's original I Have a Dream speech given right here in Detroit in June of 1963.